0: Hello, and welcome to Monocle on Culture. I'm Robert Bound. We are mere months away from the start of the World Cup in Qatar this year. And when it's time for kickoff, it won't just be the players' ball skills under scrutiny. The stadium's kits and crowds will all, of course, come under the microscope. The world's most popular sport has become entangled with cutting-edge technology, forward-facing design, as well as global media and commercialism. A new exhibition, Football, Designing the Beautiful Game, has just opened at London's Design Museum. It celebrates the role of human creativity in developing the sport and looks Back at how far football has come since men in leather boots were kicking pig bladders around a pitch. Now, before those of you not bound to a stadium or screen every weekend turn away, the exhibition tells a much bigger story than one of pure sport. It's a moving and often very funny story of fandom, innovation and community that extends far beyond the offside rule. After taking a look around the exhibition, we caught up with the assistant curator, Rachel Hayek, to find out more about putting it all together. And we all knew it was a beautiful game, but not quite this beautiful. What a deep and wonderful show. You've got so, such a sort of depth and breadth of artefacts here from across the sort of history of the game and all four corners of the globe, I suppose, as well. I want to ask you first, though, if the sort of design of the game, if it started off as sort of an accidental part of it, the strips, the posters, the literature, and now it's become much more central. How, what's the sort of timeline?
1: Yeah, I think it's undeniable that the game has become, of course, much more commercialized and everyone wants a piece of the pie, so the the design has become a lot more part of the industry, if you like. But it does have a very rich history. And For example, in the very first section performance, we start a kind of innovation timeline of Boots and Balls in the 1870s, and we've got the Harrow School Ball, which is a wonderful object it looks a bit like a burnt Christmas pudding (laughs) caked in mud you definitely wouldn't want to header that ball and we go all the way up to the present day with you know um, Adidas and Nike's present tech um, knitted shoes more synthetic materials the use of AI in training and tactics it's kind of pervasive in all areas as you say stadium architecture kit design design story is there wherever you look and
0: it was such a sort of seems like it's such a sort of in terms of the fandom and documenting the game it was such a cottage industry in the first place you know whether it was a sort of back street in Huddersfield or as a Brazilian favela you know how the you know fans and players or wannabe players sort of talked about it is this a story of commercialization or is this a is this a story of design kind of planting its flag in different parts of the game
1: I think as the fan is such a central component of football culture and you really don't get that level of fan engagement, I don't think, in any other sport. And that was definitely important for us to showcase and highlight in this exhibition and put the fan, anything designed by fans on on the kind of equal footing as the, I guess, official designers, if you like, and architects that are featured. And for example, the, the Peter Carney banners, the the kind of satirical looks that fanzines take on their favorite teams the fan is central so i wouldn't want to say we hope it's it's not a story about the commercialization but it's a story of innovation and professionalization and i think inevitably you're going to get some uglier sides to that as you go along
0: there's an interesting point in one of the fu- one of the latter rooms actually about the sort of preponderance of betting sponsors and, and all the rest of it on international shirts uh, international club shirts um, nowadays to take it back to the fan to your point there's such a wonderful sense of humour about a lot of that stuff in the chants in the literature and in the banners and all the rest of it there's quite a big and I, I think this, the, the, the show is so strong on this such a big delineation I suppose between the world of the fan and the world of the sponsor I suppose there's a lot of there's a sort of bit of lack of sense of humour, I suppose, going on, but uh, but I suppose that's part of the professionalism of it. Is that is that how it felt putting the show together?
1: I think it was nice pulling out the yeah the story for for every um, I guess formal official line you've got the the fan take on things, which is is often very different. And thank God it is. I think that's what makes it so fun and yeah there's a huge sense of humor and as you say with with the chants and we've got some wonderful examples the the crest and badge particularly I feel is a is a real site of protest and identity for the fans not just to identify the teams of course but there have been some some really nice takes on I guess vandalism is a strong word but kind of
0: kind of riffing yeah sort of riffing on
1: I think you've you've constantly got this butting heads between the formal and informal and um, that's everywhere even in the stadium design you know a lot of the time these things are just collages of appendages as the sport grows and you need to accommodate more fans you get these bits added on here and you know it might look very shiny from the outside but actually <laughs> if you if you look a bit closer you can you can see it's just a bit pasted together and, and rough and ready and it's yeah
0: Putting the show together, I mean, there are some things that you expect to see here some of the some of the football strips when you 're talking about stadium design, the ibrox disaster, Hillsborough and Heysel and these sorts of very sad things are necessarily noted here as well. What about you what What sort of surprised you have, that football had as a design component i mean I love that you've got some of the calling cards of the f- sort of hooligan firms <laughs> um coming from Southeast london that obviously speaks to a little bit of the magic of that part of the world but what surprised you to to be hanging on the wall in, in this show
1: yeah the hula cards are just fantastic the idea of a, f- a hooligan or fan you know taking the time to design this beautiful mm. business card it's it's like American psycho <laughs> it's it's very very strange and they they're so beautiful but i think the the women's story throughout and the kind of countless examples of the tenacity um you know from from before the ban in 1921 Uh, And during the World Cup, you know the kind of unofficial Women's Federation and putting on their own tournaments. And and the posters are beautiful. Unfortunately, we we can't trace the designers. But I hope that this this exhibition will encourage the next generation of researchers to dig a bit deeper, and you know talk to a lot of these these players are still around. You can you can find out their stories. I think we're getting that the Women's game is definitely gaining traction and is more popular than ever.
0: In terms of the fan fandom, the fanzines, all the stuff that some of the literature you've got. I think from the English game here; it's fascinating stuff, and, and would be from across the world. Is that is that a sort of different conversation that you know, say, English male football fans were having in their seventies to the conversations in the fan literature? Um, it's probably online now. I'm sure that is happening in the women's game. Is it a different sort of engagement? I wonder.
1: That's interesting. I I think unfortunately those stories are catching up, um. So I'm not sure. Hopefully, in a few years' time, we we can give That's you some
0: a th- female hooligan
1: calling card <laughs> yeah <laughs> one can only hope <laughs> but there's a wonderful project uh, called girl fans photographing um, female fandom and we have a few examples by Jackie McCassie and yeah so it's you you can they're there but yeah maybe more fanzies more hooli cards are necessary
0: (laughs) we won't quote you on that I'm sorry sorry to put put words into your mouth I wanted to talk to you about a little bit about brands and ask you about brands as well which so front and center and it's interesting I I was unaware of this the first sort of English football team that that were had were, were paid by a sport manufacturer's admiral for Leeds in the 1970s and of course now branding and sport and football go kind of hand in hand. You trace teams, players as brands, the, sort of whole, the whole sort of thing. Is that seems to be sort of quite subtly woven through it. I mean, this doesn't feel in any way like an advert for Adidas or Puma or Nike or whatever it might be. How, what were the conversations at a curatorial level on how to embrace brands in this project?
1: I worked on the sneakers exhibition also at the Design Museum last year, and it was a similar story. I think tracing that innovation of in boots and balls, it's you know you can't avoid Puma and Adidas. They they really were game changers in some things like screw in studs. We've got the miracle of burn boot example and then you have in particular areas like protective equipment rooich played a very important role nike as well later in in some specific innovations but yeah yeah, we you know we're we're giving credit where it's due but it's this this show is not a an endorsement for any brand and yeah i I hope we've done a good job of telling a broad story
0: it seems compared to more Complex games where the basis of the sport, cricket or American football or whatever you might call it, whatever you might list it as, is it football simplicity that kind of makes it sort of such a tenacious design player? Because the, the the design in football is so much more superior to that. I'd I'd say in other sports somehow, um, from the strips to the chance to the whole. And is it is it is it football simplicity that sort of wins out?
1: I think absolutely. The beauty of it is the simplicity. All you need is a ball, preferably boots, maybe not even. And, you know, it's also wonderful in, in our last chapter we touched on play. And if you're a fan, yes, you might spend some of the time playing the game. But actually, most of the time we're engaging with it in our imaginations. And that might be uh, trading Panini cards or playing Sabutio or FIFA. And I think, yeah, the, it's, it's every man's game, every woman's game.
0: And what's one, I mean, and you mentioned the, the Panini sticker albums and all the rest of it. These are, you're right, it's a sport that exists in the imagination, getting to the stadium and discussing it afterwards in the pub and whatever it might be, in, in looking forward simply to a game or a, or a World Cup or something. It, it's so, it sort of fizzes in the imagination almost as much as it does on the pitch, sometimes more so. What's what's one thing you'd you'd hang on your wall from this exhibition though because there's some wonderful strips some wonderful artwork as we know from world cup posters and, and things like that what would you steal
1: i would take the gursky photograph of the dortmund fans i <laughs> I'd, I'd, I'd need a bigger he's wise <laughs> i'd need more space but that is one i would i would hide under my coat out of here yeah.
0: <laughs> there's some wonderful strips here it's always, always the most beguiling thing You don't necessarily always love the design of your teams the most, home or away, but what what are you wearing home?
1: Oh, gosh, that's (laughs) such a...
0: People on the spot, that's (laughs) deeply unprofessional to ask the curator to tell us which exhibit she'd steal, but nonetheless...
1: I think the the strips are such a coded element. I think maybe just to be controversial, maybe the bruised banana, (laughs) just for the sake of it, yeah.
0: (laughs) Beautiful. Well, thanks very much for showing us around, and thanks for your time.
1: You're very welcome. Thank you.
0: Now with me to talk a bit more widely about football and style, I'm joined by fashion commentator Simon Doonan, who's the author of Saturday Night Fever Pitch, The Magic and Madness of Football Style. Simon, it's lovely uh, to have you on the programme today. We should say get once again on Monocle 24, and he came on to the Monocle Weekly a few moons ago. And this is a wonderful show at the Design Museum, but I feel like it misses something of an open goal. It crisswaddles an obvious entry point, which is football and fashion, football and style. Um, Maybe they thought it would be too mean to get into that. There's a little bit about casuals and some wonderful outfits that they they display there as well. But for you, as a style-loving football fan, as a football-loving style fan, when it sort of the style end of design start for you was it a, was it a player was it um, seeing people in a, in a football crowd that that kind of were dressing for the occasion at some point when did it start for you
2: well for me um, the sort of connection between style and and football started in the 1960s when they raised the minimum wage you know that was sort of obliterated by jimmy hill and suddenly footballers started to earn money and that coincided with the swinging 60s and all of a sudden you have. Had players like George Best and Mike Summerby actually indulging in a bit of conspicuous consumption, going to Carnaby Street, buying clothes, getting a Jaguar E type, and that was mesmerizing for me. And when Mike Summerby and Georgie Best opened a boutique together, I thought, oh my god, how great these lads! They're not just sort of tough and Violent and horrible. They're, uh, you know, they they like me. They, it was a connection for me because I was obsessed with fashion too and with culture.
0: I mean, it seems like there was a sort of happy coincidence of lots of kind of lots of good vibes happening in the '60s. There, and as you said, the kind of working man having a bit more kind of dosh in his back pocket. In terms of terrace style, I know that you cover this. You kind of do cover this in, in your book as well. When did that start? People, it's called the casuals, and and the show at the design exhibition nods to it. But when did That kind of kick in, where did you start seeing people, once you'd gone through the turnstiles, sort of dressing more like a flaneur or a promenader going to a football match, rather than, it was all men in cloth caps with cigarettes on before that, wasn't it?
2: Well, like, you've got to remember, right after the war, it was a time of incredible threadbare austerity. So again, it's financially driven. So the guys on the stands, when I was first going to see Reading play in the 1950s, they'd either fought in the First World War or the Second World War. And everybody was in sort of stained old overcoats and flat caps. And I think the Mod Revolution that happened in the 60s was a reaction to that sort of depressing threadbare life and suddenly working class kids had a bit of money from their factory jobs and they would dress up a bit so the first things I think you saw on the stands were the mods and then overlapping with that came the skinhead thing with the bov boots and the harrington jackets and the fred perry's and the short haircuts and so it kind of kicked off from there, if you'll pardon the expression.
0: <laughs> I'm glad you, am glad you got one in already, Simon. <laughs> in answer to, there's a kind of um, a softening of some of that style. We see that in the exhibition, um, and that is there's a lovely shot of a kind of white on white or cream on cream. It's a Lacoste ensemble. It's almost like a twin set in pearls, but for men, you know. It's like a lovely cream Lacoste polo shirt with a, a nice soft wool Lacoste cardigan, which is one of these casuals outfits. And this was explained as when English teams started playing European football, they'd go to, especially Italy, I guess, and they pick up Sergio Taccini, Diodora, Lacoste in France, and they pick up these different brands. Is that something that you saw creeping in as well, as much as we've heard about the sort of bovarization of Acre, a brand like Acroscootum, which was a sort of grand old man's brand and things like that in England? But did you see a sort of softening of some of that English terrace and fan style?
2: It's very interesting because... First of all, I think with the, with the skinheads of time, you know, which was very violent, and that's when all the trains would get wrecked any time there was a away game and blah, blah, blah. Suddenly the penny dropped and young working class kids thought, oh, if I dress like I'm going to wreck the place, the coppers are going to nab me. So they realized if they started dressing like a Regent Street Toff shopping at Aquascutum or... You know, Fred Perry or just looking more polished and more neat and more sort of middle class and wearing a white turtleneck under a v-neck as if you were going to play golf at Glen Eagles or something <laughs> like that. It was a, a kind of camouflage. They were like, oh yeah no, if I dress like I'm going to wreck the place, they'll nab me as soon as I get off the train, you know, like uh, yeah. so it was that. Dressing like plus. the manager
0: rather than the hooligan almost I suppose.
2: Yeah, and it was a class thing, like like going up a notch and there were instances of casuals wearing deer hats which is like what could be more hilarious than that like oh no I'm not a football hooligan I'm I'm Sherlock Holmes you know yeah yeah and and I worked at Aquascutum in the 70s so it was kind of very hilarious for me to see that um you know make its way into the into the (laughs) footy world in that way
0: and we mentioned, I mentioned there that it seems like the sort of world, of, there's a sort of the posher, smarter world of the of the manager. We're probably still talking about the 1980s here in the UK. I mean, we'll, 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 we'll nod to the sheepskin overcoat, um, both the fan of the commentator and the manager. Actually, let, let's talk about that. Where did that kick in? We know that as the great English commentator John Motson always favouring one of those, maybe Ron Atkinson as a manager. Is that, where Where did that sort of kick in? That's such a football cliche from the 80s, isn't it?
2: 70s and 80s and um, Barney Roney you know brilliant writer he wrote a fabulous book about managers and it is it does also document manager style it's hilarious because actually if you look at what managers wore in the 70s and into the 80s they were a lot more flamboyant than they are now you know like now they're super conscious of of being mocked. And back then, there were big kipper ties and wide lapels and chic skin hats and, you know, the fedora and that whole era of managers. Um, I document that in my book because so I found it very amusing. And it was definitely a 70s thing. Like after the counterculture, men in general felt comfortable to be more flamboyant, wear color, you know, check suits with big polyester ties and, um So, like now, we laugh about it, but you got to hand it to them—they were had a lot more style bravado than the managers now, who look very kind of Prada, very restrained, like their funeral directors. Like, you know, Pep Guardiola. <laughs> yeah. Pep Guardiola is a very stylish guy, but it's in a very restrained. Uh, austere it's very sort kind of Milanese of
0: isn't it it's yeah if I, at my funeral I want him as the funeral director
2: you know we'll see so if we don't... can
0: make that happen Simon I'm sure <laughs> 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 it's just it's just a mere foreword in the paperback edition of the print we've ticked off the, the stands I suppose what about on the pitch I mean there are some wonderful some wonderful strips in this show at the design museum but for you what are the, the players shirts that kind of stand out there's obviously some famous ones I remember there being a lot of a pro and poured on David Seaman for an away goalie strip when he was playing for Arsenal and or England, which was kind of famously looked like the sort of test card. What are some of the goodies and what are some of the baddies in terms of strips?
2: I think that, you know, shirts used to be just standard, you know, the same ones. And once that became an area of creativity and, and expression and also finance, you know, once the Premier League got going, there was real money to be made there. I myself always enjoy a vertical stripe, I think it's very flattering. And so, Newcastle is a great kit. Um, it always looks strong, even when they do variations of it. But then this. this This season, Crystal Palace did that wonderful diagonal stripe with the fancy collar. I mean, if you look at the nuanced details that are now currently being poured into shirts, it's incredible. Like Southampton had that brilliant little, you know, v-neck thing that they did this season. It looked kind of vintage and everyone's picking up on this all across the social media landscape. So um, there's a lot of effort put into the nuances of shirt design now. And, you know, to me, I whenever there's one that's like a huge standout, like the Nigeria shirt from the last World Cup, you look at it and you think, My God, this is insane. Can you imagine what they would have done with that, you know, at the shed end in the 1960s? But then it becomes globally the most popular shirt and they couldn't keep it in in business. So people enjoy provocative, interesting shirts. And yes, they get criticised on social media because they're low hanging fruit, you know, for social media to chew on. But people love it. It's become a great new aspect of footy that makes it engaging and entertaining
0: and can you see a through line simon from you, you mentioned sort of the style of someone like george best and even someone like jeff hurst who's sort of such a sort of handsome together kind of guy and it's slightly different in his style to sort of what someone more, more showy like like george best back in the 60s as you say the sort of low-hanging fruit some of the contemporary english footballers like jack Grealish and some of his teammates who are kind of channelling the spirit of Beckham and Gascoigne in the kind of outlandish where whatever it whatever it is, as long as it's got a label on it or as long as it was expensive, it kind of goes with the sort of lime green Lamborghini, I suppose. But can you see a through line for, from young men with money kind of having a good time when they can't go out and get drunk anymore, I suppose, as professional sportsmen? Or do you feel like we're in a different era of style at the moment with footballers and, and their style? Well,
2: I think we're in a different era. Like, if you look... Look at Beckham and his generation, you know, um, 1992, Premier League, it kicks off. Suddenly they're owning a lot more money. It's not just George Best money, it's just insane.
1: Arguably the most recognisable footballer
2: in the world. Yeah! And David Beckham was extremely fashion conscious. He looked great. And this coincided with the interest in fashion in the nineteen nineties. Like fashion really became a big global spectator sport in the nineties. It really before that, you couldn't sell a movie in Hollywood if it was about fashion. Fashion was sort of this weird confusing minority interest before that so the 1990s you get another one of these weird collisions where more money coming in you've got a really great adonis sort of male model handsome looking guy Beckham, who happens to like clothes and be interested in them, and then you have this also growth of fashion, you know g q everything men's fashion becoming more of a component of business, you know before that women's fashion was the lion's share of of the money to be made, but then men it really. It really accelerated in the 90s. So it was another one of those interesting collisions. And unfortunately, a little bit now, social media has made them a bit gun-shy. You know? So we look at Jack Grealish and we think, oh, he's a nut shot. Look at the hair and da 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 Because there aren't a lot of players for us to... To uh, attack or worship or follow or be influenced by, you know, Jack Grealish is a bit of a sandout, which is might be why breaking news, he just got a six figure deal to be a spokesperson for Gucci. Because they're like, well, he's a standout. He's the heir to Beckham, blah, 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 blah. The rest of them, they're now supervised. You know, they don't get to just sit around and write outrageous autobiographies and wear completely bonkers outfits. They have a lot of oversight in the club that they didn't have before. You know, PR minders and people protecting them from becoming you know targets of social media because in the beginning social media was like this wonderful kind of fluffy support for everything and entertainment including sports now it's like oh hang on you know social media is gonna talk more about that than the fact that we won the game and so they have a lot of oversight now so they're cautious but to have one who's not so cautious like Jack Grealish is a treat and I think we should all appreciate him and not you know, encourage him to further yeah. flights of flamboyance he's a bomb to all of
0: our vanities Jack Grealish and good for him good for Nicely him on his Gucci put. deal right <laughs> just to tie it up a bit Simon I mean this exhibition at the Design Museum is about football and design designing the beautiful game is its subtitle do you feel from from match day programs to the outfits that are on display on the pitch to the to the the, the clothes that are worn in the stands, that design has been a sort of add on to football, whether it's for all of its time or the last twenty years, whatever it might be, whether it's really part of the DNA of the game, whether it it, it, design is what makes is part of what makes the beautiful game beautiful in a way I suppose
2: I think it's part of the DNA at this point I mean I think back to Bobby Moore you know uh, who was such a handsome guy he had a coat business he was very stylish his wife was beautiful Uh, this man from Adidas used to come around and give him like five quid and say give me your boots and I'll paint three stripes on them and you know he'd hang out at the hotel wherever they were staying take the boots paint the three stripes on them and Bobby Moore would get the five quid at some point. So that's when it's kind of started, this meticulous branding meets style, meets entertainment meets, here's a handsome footballer, what can we do to take that further? People are looking at him, what should he be doing? And that's given birth to this fabulous culture that we have where haircuts, tattoos. We haven't even talked about ink. I mean, like, the whole culture of football is so fascinating. The cars, the watches. Like, it started for me also with that... Bloke painting the three stripes on Bobby Moore's shoe- shoes, you know, with his own paintbrush, and he's the guy from Adidas, the marketing guy. It's
0: absolutely amazing. I mean, a more innocent age, I suppose, Simon. But you know, we've kind of come slightly full circle, and you know, it feels like each player has has an individual from Adidas painting three stripes on almost anything, right? These days, <laughs> most of them now <laughs> are permanent, as you say. Thanks very much for uh, tying up our, uh, our loose ends and our, bo- our boot laces. <laughs> three-striped or otherwise <laughs> doesn't need vertical stripes to be uh, to look very flattering on the line from new york simon doonan thank you very much thank you that's all we have time for this week my thanks to rachel hayek at the design museum and to simon doon there monocle on culture is produced by sophie Monahan coombs and steph Chonggu, and steph also edits the show we'll be back at the same time next week but until then from me robert bound thanks for tuning in
2: did mm-hmm. you